good afternoon. You're listening to Let the Bible Speak. Let the Bible Speak is the radio ministry of the Free Presbyterian Church. Stephen Pollock is the pastor of the Free Presbyterian Church of Malvern, Pennsylvania. Thank you for joining us today as he opens the Word of God and lets the Bible speak. Thank you for taking the time to listen to this latest episode of Let the Bible Speak. We do appreciate those who listen week by week. And once more, can I encourage you to get in touch to let us know how the program is blessing your soul and helping you in your walk with God. Today's episode is an overview of a lengthy passage from 2 Kings chapter 6 and the verse 24 through to the end of chapter 7. I'd encourage you, if it is possible, to get a Bible out and study the passage with us. If that's not possible, I hope that as we overview it together, you will still hear what the Lord would say to you as you hear the Word of God today. The key theme is the reliability of God in keeping His promises. We have a faithful God, a God who has spoken in His Word, and in a Word that, that can be relied upon. The Bible gives us many promises. The Bible encourages the unbeliever to call upon the name of the Lord, and they shall be saved. The Bible encourages the Christian with the knowledge that God will never leave them nor forsake them. And so throughout the Bible, you have these narratives that continue to strengthen the faith of the child of God, that as we study the Word and read the Word, we become convinced in our minds that God is fully to be trusted. And of course, in a day of changing times, in times of suffering and turmoil, it is a tremendous refuge, a tremendous support to know that God is a faithful and reliable God. May the Word be a blessing to your souls today. Please turn tonight in your Bibles once more to 2 Kings chapter 6. 2 Kings chapter 6. What I want to try to do tonight is uh, perhaps somewhat different than our approach may normally be, is I want to take uh, a section that begins in chapter 6 and the verse number 24 and study all the way through to the end of chapter 7. And that's a very uh, lengthy portion of Scripture. We're not going to read it at this point, uh, but rather we'll have uh, what uh, the old divines may have called a Bible reading. And what we'll do, therefore, is we'll read an outline the Scriptures and make our way through it and read it through uh, the message and make our way through all of these verses. And there is one summary verse I want to read at this point, and that is uh, verse number 16 of chapter 7. Uh, so 2 Kings 16, the verse 7 says, And the people went out and spoiled the tents of the Syrians. So a measure of fine flour was sold for a shekel, and two measures of barley for a shekel, according to the word of the Lord. And so as we come to this portion, I want to really introduce it by asking you a question that unbelievers will often ask. Why doesn't God do something about all the suffering in the world? Why doesn't God stop all the agony and all the pain in this world? Many pose it as one of the great challenges to the existence of God. God is all-powerful. God is all-good. Therefore, how come there is all this suffering? Of course, it is a massive question beyond the scope of our studies tonight. 
But I think that question will help us as we work our way through this lengthy narrative. There are different things I want to focus on as we make our way through it, but I want to really step back, and perhaps if you're watching one of the, uh, the, the, the great scenes or the, the great pictures that are painted in the uh, Philadelphia Art Museum, you may go to the very far side of the room to enjoy the entire picture. Yes, there's detail close up, but there is a great benefit sometimes in standing back and seeing the picture as a whole. And this portion, chapter 6, 24, to the end of chapter 7, is a narrative, a story about God intervening to deliver a suffering people. It is about God intervening to deliver a people who are suffering. And they're suffering due to the effects of sin in the world. All suffering comes from sin. Every aspect of the suffering that we endure comes from sin somewhere along the way. The world is broken. It is under the curse, and that's because of man's sin. Of course, much suffering is caused by man's wickedness. Our own wickedness, that causes much suffering. And the wickedness of others, of course, also leads to much suffering. And this portion, I say, deals with the issue of suffering. Note, first of all, there is pain, the pain of conflict. Verse number 24, And it came to pass after this that Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, gathered all his host and went up and besieged Samaria. Here we find the nation of Syria have come to attack the people of God. And they've come and laid siege upon this city of Samaria. And due to the siege, there is, verse 25, there is great famine in Samaria. Famine, siege, these effects of war and conflict that comes from the fall. War is an effect of the fall. War was not part of the first creation. It comes after the fall of man. Of course, Cain kills his brother. There is the beginning of death and conflict after sin enters the world. And we see this every war brings its own conflict or brings its own agony and pain. And here in this portion, we read about the horrors of this war. The pain is marked by horrors. You have in the end of verse 25, a description of the food. An ass's head was sold for four score pieces of silver and the fourth part of a calf of dove's dung for five pieces of silver. Now this is inflation. The worst of food being sold for more than week's wages. It is out of all proportion. And of course, the consequence then from the food expense is human expense. And the writer highlights the human expense by telling a story, the story of the king and a woman. Verse 26, And as the king of Israel was passing by upon the wall, there cried a woman unto him, saying, Help my lord, O king. And he said, If the Lord do not help thee, whence shall I help thee? Out of the barn floor or out of the wine press? And the king's making the point that such is the, uh, the nature of the famine after the siege that there is no help anywhere to be found, even in his own uh, property. And the king says, verse 28, What aileth thee? And she answered, This woman sent me, give thy son, that we may eat him today. And we will eat my son tomorrow. So he boiled my son and did eat him. And I said unto her on the next day, Give thy son that we may eat him. And she hath hid her son. This is not an imaginary story. This is not a parable. 
It is the true life event of the tragedy of war that came upon a city. It is horrific. It is not unheard of, even in modern days and modern wars, for such atrocities to be performed as people try to survive the effects of war. This is indeed a time of horror. It's also marked, the pain is also marked by hopelessness. Verse 27, the king says, If the Lord do not help thee, when shall I help thee? There's a sense of which there is no hope here. We have no grounds to suppose this is a believing king. Well, whatever the case may be, there is indeed no sense of hope here. We can't do anything ourselves. Utter hopelessness. There's also, though, hardness. Hardness. Look at verse number 30. And it came to pass, when the king heard the words of the woman that rent his clothes, and he passed by upon the wall, and the people looked, and behold, he had sackcloth within upon his flesh. You may read that and think here's some initial repentance. There's sackcloth being put upon him. And then you have here. This hardness that continues, verse 31. Then he said, God do so and more to me also if the head of Elisha, the son of Shaphat, shall stand on this day. This king is marked by hardness. This is an unbelieving king. This king has no time for the ways of God. He's hardened in his soul. And he is determined to bring punishment to bear because he blames Elisha. Does he recognize the siege under God? Yes. But it's Elisha who's at fault. And thus he's going to take Elisha's life. And thus, in verse number 32, Elisha sat in his house, and the elders sat with him. And the king sent a man from before him. But ere the messenger came to him, he said to the elders, See how this son of a murderer has sent to take away mine head. Look, when the messenger cometh, shut the door. And holding fast to the door is not the sign of his master's feet beyond him. And while he yet talked with them, behold, the messenger came down unto him. And he said, Behold, this evil is of the Lord. What should I wait for the Lord any longer? Here's frustration. The king recognizes that the famine, the conflict, is under God's sovereign hand. More than likely, he understands that due to the curse of their sin, and Elisha is now the messenger of God. And so he comes to Elisha, and he says, It's the Lord's doing. We can't wait any longer for the Lord. There's frustration here. God hasn't fixed it. Therefore, why wait any longer? It's probably a good time to pause and apply this a little bit. There are many times in the hearts of God's people that they wait long for the Lord to intervene. This evil is off the Lord. They believe in God's sovereignty. But then there is this frustration. What should I wait the Lord any longer? We've sought the Lord's face. We've, we've sought God to intervene in our behalf. But I guess the point of frustration boils over. And they begin to take things into their own hands. Or else they become bitter towards the Lord. So in this opening section, the end of chapter 6, you have the pain of conflict. And then in chapter 7, you see the promise of intervention. There's a promise here. Verse 1 of chapter 7, Then Elisha said, Hear ye the word of the Lord. And thus saith the Lord, Tomorrow about this time shall a measure of fine flour be sold for a shekel, and two measured barley for a shekel in the gate of Samaria. It's a promise of intervention. Inflation is going to reverse, not to normal levels of, of commerce, but certainly a lot better. There'll be food, 
and it will be able to be sold for a better price. That means there's going to be an abundance of food provided, and it's going to come soon, tomorrow about this time. This is God's promise of intervention. Hear ye the word of the Lord. And we'll come back to that. But the response, the promise, is that the promise that was detailed is then denied. Verse number two. Then a Lord on whose hand the king leaned, answered the man of God and said, Behold, if the Lord would make windows in heaven, might this thing be? You might read that and wonder, well, what's he saying here? Is this a, a man who believes that God is able to make windows in heaven and therefore rain down a blessing? Well, I don't think so. I think this is sarcasm. I think this is a matter of a sneering response because look at the response. Verse number two, Elisha said, Behold, Thou shalt see it with thine eyes, but shalt not eat thereof. The Lord's upon whom this, or whose hand the king leans, this Lord is marked by unbelief. And we'll see that uh, later on as well. So you have the promise detailed, then the promise denied, and then you have the promise discovered. And this perhaps is the most uh, famous account in this uh, lengthy narrative about the Syrian army. And is the account of the four lepers uh, their reasoning is, is very simple. And there were four leprous men, verse 3, at the entering of the gate, and they said one to another, Why sit we here until we die? Makes total sense, doesn't it? Why would they not go and see what's happening? And so they say in verse 4, We will enter into the city. Then the famine is in the city, and we shall die there. And if we sit still here, we die also. Plan A, plan B, they both end up in death. Now therefore come, and let us fall unto the host of the Syrians. If they save us alive, we shall live. And if they kill us, we shall but die. Plan A, death. Plan B, death. Plan C, maybe death, but maybe life. And so they go and they make their way. Verse number 5, And they rose up in the twilight to go unto the camp of the Syrians. And when they were come, that was part of the camp of the Syrians. Well, the Syrians, sorry. Behold, there was no man there. Wait, there was no man there? Well, we're told the reason, verse 6. For the Lord had made the host of the Syrians to hear a noise of chariots and the noise of horses, even the noise of a great host. And they said one to another, Lo, the king of Israel hath hired against us the king of the Hittites and the king of the Egyptians to come upon us. Wherefore they arose and fled. That's interesting because, remember back in chapter 6, in the verse 27, the king said, If the Lord do not help thee, when shall I help thee? And what happens? The Lord comes and helps. The Lord comes in a most dramatic fashion, and so they arouse, they arise and they flee. So the lepers, verse number eight, when these lepers came to the uttermost part of the camp, they went to one tent and ate and drink, and carried thence silver and gold and raiment, and went and hid it, and came again, and entered another tent, and carried thence also, and went and hid it. There's a great abundance here. But of course, then the lepers they, they realize, they come to their senses, verse nine. Then they said one to another, We do not well. Now this day is a good day of, is a day of good tidings, and we hold our peace. Then the end, now therefore come, that we may go and tell the king's household. These lepers, uh, the wisdom is remarkable. I, I could hear them talking to unbelievers in verse number three. Why sit you here until you die? You're in death and you're sin, you're dying, and you're going to continue to die until you die. Don't sit in death. Get up and get to Christ and run to life. I can, I can hear them saying that. And yet in verse 9, I can hear them speaking to the believer and saying, 
You do not wail. This day is a day of good tidings. But you hold your peace. Therefore, let us go and tell. You can see the application very clearly. Uh, just making the point that their wisdom and their reasoning is very sound. So this promise is detailed, denied, then discovered, and then doubted. Verse number 12. <coughs> Excuse me. And the king arose in the night and said unto his servants, I will now show you what the servants have done to us. So the lepers have gone to the king. They've reported what's happened. And he says this. They know that we be hungry. Therefore are they gone out of the camp to hide themselves in the field, saying, When they come out of the city, we shall catch them alive and get into the city. What's happening here? The king is doubting the intervention of God. He's come to himself and he said, It's a plot. It's a plot. It's an evil, malicious plot. And if we go out there, the Syrians are going to get us out of the city. They've been besieging us all this time. We're going to leave the city now. It's an open door for them to come in. End of the war. So the king has this doubt in his mind, despite being told the word of the Lord. Verse number 13 to 15, in turn, then demonstrates this promise. The promise of intervention is demonstrated. A wise serpent simply says, let's go and take a look. Verse 14, they took therefore two charred horses, and the king sent after the host of Syrians, saying, go and see. And they went after them unto Jordan, and lo, all the way was full of garments and vessels, which the Syrians had cast away in their haste. And the messengers returned and told the king, they've gone, they've looked, and they've seen, the Syrians are gone. It's a wonderful account of God's miraculous intervention. So you have the pain of the conflict, then you have this uh, section of the promise of intervention, and then you have the possession of the deliverance. Verse 16, And the people went out and spoiled the tents of the Syrians. So a measure of fine flour was sold for a shekel, and two measures of barley for a shekel, according to the word of the Lord. That's the point of the whole story. It's all to show that God's promise is true. That what God says will happen, will happen, and God is reliable and can be trusted. Verse 1 of chapter 7, Hear ye the word of the Lord. And despite all the doubts and the denials, the word of the Lord comes to pass. It's according to the word of the Lord. Which leads to the last thing, which is the peril of unbelief. Verse 17 through 20. And let me read these verses to you again. And the king appointed the Lord, on whose hand he leaned, to have the charge of the gates. And the people trod upon him in the gate, and he died, as the man of God had said, who spake when the king came down to him. And it came to pass, as the man of God had spoken to the king, saying, Two measures of barley for a shekel, and a measure of fine flour for a shekel, shall be tomorrow about this time in the gate of Samaria. And that Lord answered the man of God and said, Now behold, if the Lord should make windows in heaven, might such a thing be. And he said, Behold, thou shalt see it with thine eyes, but thou shalt not eat thereof. So it fell out upon him unto him, for the people trod upon him in the gate, and he died. They've taken one, two, three, four verses to repeat all of the preceding narrative regarding the event of this man upon whom the king leans. To make the point, God's word is true. It comes to pass and beware living in unbelief of God's word. 
There's blessing that comes through the intervention of God, but there is judgment upon those who live in a state of unbelief. So Mark will account. See, faith believes all that the Lord has said. Faith takes God at his word. Yeah, the believer sees the work of God here. Oh yes, there are human instruments used. Elisha, the lepers, a servant, there's various people used. But they understand, the believer understands that the work of man is according to the work and the will of God. There is pain and conflict. There's a promise that God gives, a promise of intervention that comes to pass. And the danger is that of unbelief in the midst. So how, how do you apply all this? How do you begin to make this relevant? It's a wonderful story. You, you read the story and you think, I, I must believe God. But in, in what sense are we believing God? Or, or we're not living in a besieged city. So in, in, how, how do we come to apply this to your souls tonight? Well, I want to do so by turning to one other portion. And that is 2 Peter chapter 3. Because the parallel that existed in the city of Samaria and the parallel to us today is very striking. And in 2 Peter chapter 3, and the verse number 2, it says, Knowing this first, that there shall come in the last days scoffers walking after their own lust, and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. Second Peter 3 is a story, it's a section of dealing with the unbelief. This world is marked by pain. The fall that brought about the conflict in Samaria is the same fall that brings about all the trouble and turmoils in our world. Creation is groaning under the curse. There's wars and rumors of wars. There are earthquakes and tsunamis and famines and floods and all these things. And they haven't just come in the modern day. These things have marked human history since the fall. You know all, of course, the delight in uh, propagating the, uh, the global climate issues and all the rest, and um, whatever the case may be in those things, troubles in this world have always marked the fall. There's always been trouble, always been suffering, always been difficulties, famines and floods and wars and earthquakes, all of these things. It's a painful creation. And in that pain, God has given a promise. And the promise is mentioned, verse 4, where is the promise of his coming? God has promised to intervene. 2 Peter 3 outlines three worlds. There is the old world, the now world, and the world to come. Three worlds divided by two judgments. The old world, the floods, the now world, the fire, the then world, and new heavens and new earth. That's a promise of Christ's coming. And in Christ's coming, suffering will cease. And I'm telling you now, the word of the Lord that was sure in Elisha's mouth is the word of the Lord that is sure in Peter's mouth. And Christ will return, and Christ will make all things new. And our response in light of this must not be unbelief. We must not join the scoffers saying, where is the promise of his coming? We shouldn't look at the world and say, God has left us to our own devices. 
Rather, we respond with patient faith. We are those, in verse 11 of 2 Peter 3, who live in all holy conversation and godliness. We are those who are looking for and hastening unto the coming of the day of God. We are looking for this promise to come. We're believing this promise will come. We're expecting it earnestly. And so God, in his mercy, will come. And there is a restoration promise. Verse 13, Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, according to the word of God, we look for new heavens and a new earth, wherein dwelleth righteousness. No conflict, but peace and joy and righteousness. You see, Christ has died. He has secured the promise. He now is praying for us, preparing a place for us, and he will come again and receive us unto himself. And as he does so, we are then brought into the eternal blessed state. There's a certain promise. And yet, while this promise is enjoyed by the people of God, there is a solemn peril of unbelief. And the scoffers say, where is the promise of his coming? His coming for those scoffers in verse number 7 is a day of fire against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. I hope you see the parallel. There's the pain of living under the fall. There's a promise of God's intervention. And the response to that promise must be faith and not unbelief. We must accept that what God says is true. We must make sure that we're in Christ, righteous in Christ, and then righteous, living righteous lives unto Christ. That's the response of the child of God to suffering in the world. It is understanding that God has indeed promised to intervene and to make all things new. And the reason whereby he holds back is in verse 9. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Suffering in the world is a tremendous problem, but God has promised, and his promise will come to pass. And the issue at stake for us tonight is, are we those who believe, and like the lepers will come into the enjoyment of God's provision and God's blessing? Are we those who will leave the death in which we live, leave that death, leave our sin, and step out on the promise Step out in the promise of God and receive the blessings which God offers to those who trust in his word. Amen. May God bless his word to your hearts afresh today. Thank you for taking the time to listen to this episode of Let the Bible Speak from Malvern Free Presbyterian Church. We extend an invitation to all to join us as we worship the Lord each week you will be made very welcome. The church is situated at 80 Mallon Road, Malvern, Pennsylvania. We meet for worship on the Lord's Day at 11 a.m. and 6 p.m. A Bible study and prayer meeting is also held on Wednesday evenings at 7 p.m. If you'd like more information about the gospel or the church, please call 610-993-3170. That's 610-993-3170 or email malvernfpc at yahoo.com. We preach Christ crucified.